This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. Welcome back to the Canadian Investor Podcast. We're back for a earnings and news episode. I'm here with Dan Kent, as uh, I'm sure everyone is familiar with at this point. Before we get started, Dan, you know, how's it going? And have you been having fun reviewing the Canadian banks this morning? Because I know you woke up early to do that, right? Yeah, definitely did talk about it a bit in a in a bit here, but it's been going all right. I had I was about to make my weekly contributions to my portfolio and my my dishwasher crapped the bed a month after the warranty ran out. So Oh. <laughs> I kind of held that off because it's probably going to be a a $1200 bill to replace that. So yeah, I, conveniently it failed like I moved in January 12th and it failed okay. yesterday. Oh, so like sucks. 13 months <laughs> <laughs> You'll brutal. have to become a, you know, the dishwasher yourself. So yeah, exactly for a bit here. Yeah, and no, I'm not I don't think I've ever, No, I I don't think I've ever asked you that. So do you cook, or is it uh, your spouse that cooks? Like I do what? most of the cooking. Mo- okay, yeah. I'm like that too. I probably do ninety percent. Yeah, a lot of a lot of couples are surprised. I'm like, well, I mean. There's some simple stuff, but you can also like you know, just follow a recipe, right? It's not exactly. rocket science. <laughs> That's why when uh, when HelloFresh or, or Good Food come out with the with the sixty percent off the first box or whatever, I, I love that. Throw it in the fridge and whip it out. Hey, there you go. Well, I guess enough of our food and cooking habits. We'll get started here, and obviously. Is there any other way to start, Dan, than uh, just uh, that little company called NVIDIA that reported last week? The stock that probably saved the market because it wasn't looking good up until the earnings. No, exactly. It it does feel like that, right? Almost, I was kind of joking to Braden. I was texting him and I'm like, I can tell if, you know, the market, NVIDIA is up or down because the market will be up or down. That's pretty much how things are going right now. Well, what did they, after they reported, I think the NASDAQ closed like 3% up or? Yeah. I think it was. Yeah, something like that. Whereas Mm -hmm. if it didn't report earnings, it probably would have closed 3% down. I would imagine so because it was looking that way. Yeah. And I mean, I think we can all agree and people will listen. And I'm sure at this point, you've seen a lot of takes on the quarter from NVIDIA. So, you know, personally, I think obviously that it was a blowout quarter. I think you can't really say otherwise. As an investment, I think this is where it gets a little more difficult for NVIDIA because I think there's a lot of risks going forward. And you hear a lot of bulls on TV about NVIDIA and they tend to only focus on you know, the good and uh, extrapolating what's happening into the future. And I'm sure it will continue to happen to some extent in the next uh, year or two. But beyond that, I think just hearing people saying like, oh, I can see NVIDIA continuing doing that for like four, five, six, seven years. I think they're ignoring a lot of risks involved with that business. Yeah, it seems crazy to think that it can grow this fast for this long. But I also, I had compared it if, probably a week ago to Google just in terms of cash flow generation and how like Google's generating like four times the amount of cash flow and how NVIDIA would have to grow it at a particular pace to catch up with Google. And it, I mean, this quarter, it, it generated a lot of free cash flow, like relative to what it has done in previously. So, I mean, maybe it can keep it up, but over 
the course of the long term, it seems it seems hard to imagine, but who knows? Yeah, exactly. I think it all depends where the business goes, the competition, I mean, yeah. the growth rate, the valuation, right? There's a lot of things involved. There's no doubt it's a great business, but at the same time, will it be a great investment? I think that's where the debate lies yeah. in. But Having said that, let's talk about the results here. So revenues increased 265% year over year for Q4, which is pretty wild. But even the increase from Q3 to Q4 was 22%. And for a lot of businesses, I don't know about you, but for a lot of businesses, just having that kind of year over year growth of 22% is pretty impressive. Obviously, on a core like sequential basis, it's even more so. Yeah, quarter twenty two percent quarter over quarter, especially when they're what a two trillion dollar company is that's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, and really leading that is the data center revenues. They were by far the biggest contributor here by a mile, I would say. So revenues were up four hundred and nine percent for data center revenues year over year and twenty seven percent from Q three. Data center revenue is now eighty three percent of Nvidia's revenue. So it's really massive, obviously driven by AI here. And gross margins went up from sixty three percent to seventy six percent year over year, and they increased two hundred basis point from Q3 alone. Earnings per share was up 765% over year and 33% for Q3. So get used to these numbers. That's kind of how their quarter went. They're just these really large numbers, which are definitely hard to wrap your head around sometimes. I don't know about you, but uh, just reading that, it's just like, it's mind blowing. Well, yeah, you look back to, I was mostly, their data revenue or their data centers is what it's just unbelievable like in 20 january 2017 this is from the finchat like kpis 830 million in data center revenue and now it's 30 almost 33 billion dollars like that is just it's it's crazy yeah it's completely insane and i posted on twitter (laughs) if people want to you know follow me it's at fiat underscore iceberg and i posted a chart that i'm showing right now to join tci members essentially it just goes and shows it's on a quarterly basis and you just see the data center revenue just massively increasing i mean since the quarter that ended in january of 2020 data center growth has compounded at an annual compounded at a rate of 180 eight percent which is pretty crazy yeah like you would think this would have to plateau at some point because i mean this is probably all like a lot of preemptive purchases maybe by big tech and all that kind of stuff you wouldn't think i mean it can't really grow at this pace for a long time but who knows how long it'll keep up for i mean especially with so many new ai platforms rolling out recently Yeah, and I think that's the debate, right, is how long can NVIDIA grow this? And that that's definitely a a big debate going on. And just finishing over the numbers here, free cash flow was up 57% compared to last year, obviously looking at a full year basis. They bought back 3.5 billion worth of shares during the quarter, uh, more than offset the 1 billion in stock based compensation. Whether that's the best use of capital here, I guess is debatable. I mean, it probably looks good just based on the pop that the stock got when they released earnings. But the big debate, I think, is around how long can this continue? And I was watching an interview on BNN Bloomberg with a uh, senior portfolio manager, and he was arguing that the AI market would grow at 40% annually over the next five years, and that NVIDIA will be 
keep exceeding expectation during this period of time. The argument being that NVIDIA will be one of the biggest beneficiaries from that. And what was interesting when the host asked him about concentration risk because, and the host cited that customers, one customer represents 20% of their revenue. It's actually 19%, but because uh, I was reading their annual report in the risk section, they don't say who their customers are. But concentration risk of customer is one of the risk, and they do state that there is one customer that represent 19%. I think you can fairly, people can guess to like guess yeah. who the customers are. I think you can probably say that obviously there's a Microsoft in there, there's going to be Google, there's going to be Amazon, like all the big cloud providers are purchasing this equipment right now. But at the same time, you know, if one of them decides to say, okay, I think we're we're good in terms of, you know, the buildup, or maybe we're going to start looking at some options from AMD, for example, maybe they're not as, you know, has performance or high performance as the NVIDIA chips, but, you know, is it is the cost performance ratio better for the Nvidia ch uh, chips, and is it good enough for what we want to accomplish? And I think you have to be really careful with that. Even if they do produce the best chips, at some point, it's such a lucrative market. I mean, we just talked about the margins. I, the margins yeah. are so high. Competitors are seeing this. They are seeing this, and they are saying, how can I get a piece of those margins? So that is something that it may take a year or two or even longer, but even if they don't have the best option that's equally as good as NVIDIA, if the price point is so much lower, it's going to start impacting NVIDIA's revenues. And then you get also into the risk of being overly reliant on one producer, because a lot of people think NVIDIA produces the chips. They actually design the chips. And then the chips are produced by uh, mostly Taiwan Semiconductor Company, mm -hmm. which predominantly located in Taiwan. And then you get into the whole geopolitical risk. What happens if there's a Chinese invasion of Taiwan? All the risk associated with that. But if you listen to people talking about NVIDIA that are bullish, they basically like, un honestly, they literally brush aside all the risk. They just focus on the upside. And that's when the alarm bells go on for me is yeah. when you hear people talk and it's only upside and no risk. Yeah, and I mean, it was much the same. I remember in like 2020, 2021, it was kind of the same with Tesla. I mean, a lot of people were, you know, brushing off the risks there. I mean, just crazy prices on their vehicles and now they're having to consistently cut. And I mean, I think NVIDIA's in a bit better position than something like that. But just speaking on, you know, stocks trading at kind of crazy valuations, I'm surprised they actually didn't, state which customer uh makes up the the 20 percent. they just said a major customer i mean yeah, i guess maybe they, they just can't said, state it but i mean i think they can they just don't want to yeah i think that's probably i mean nothing i don't think nothing forces them i think some companies when you look at earnings regardless of the sector they will specify the customers yeah some won't but you can, I mean, just by the cost of these chips, I can imagine that a lot of it is just, uh, you know, everything surrounding cloud infrastructure. I yeah. think that's it. So, yeah. Well, and you see like how OpenAI has exploded over the last while. Like I would, if I were to bet, I would would say it's Microsoft for sure. Yeah, that, and at that, what that. point does, you know, you know, a ton of capital spend now kind of flatten out once they've kind of got everything, you know, infrastructure built out, things like that. But uh yeah, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, and they're they're guiding for a pretty good quarter as well. A lot of people are kind of banking on them exceeding this guidance. So they're guiding for revenues to be twenty four billion in Q one. So that would be a nine percent increase versus Q four or a two hundred thirty three percent increase year over year. So I think a lot of people have gotten used to them to beating the guidance. So we'll have to see. Look, I'm not saying it's uh and I think you agree with me like I think it's a very good company that's not what we're debating but there are some risks associated with it and you know a good company doesn't mean necessarily good returns if you don't get the right valuation and the future doesn't exactly pan out exactly how you see it to grow into whichever valuation you paid for it yeah I kind of say like price to perfection Pretty much. Yeah. It's not saying like it can't continue to go up, but I think like at this point, everything needs to go right, which like I said that six months ago, but everything is most certainly going right, which is why it's like just absolutely ripping right now. But yeah, it was, it was a pretty good quarter. I'm happy to look on the sidelines, but I say that yeah. and I think I calculated and I probably have like a couple thousand dollars in NVIDIA just through index funds. So I'm kind of half on the sidelines. I, I have, yeah, I, I do have some uh, exposure through my index funds. So I'm more than happy to just kind of look from the sidelines. It's fascinating. We'll have to see where it goes. To stay into the tech space, uh, do you want to go over Lightspeed Commerce Earnings? I think they came out a couple weeks ago. I know it was a very popular holding for our listeners, at least during the pandemic. I know it's gone, uh, it's falling down from grace along with a lot of uh, very expensive uh, companies that, well, companies that were trading at high multiples in 2021, including Teladoc that I'll be talking about a bit later, but you can start us off with Lightspeed. Yes, Lightspeed is it's taken a pretty big hit from uh like peak numbers in 2021. I mean, headline numbers were not that bad. Uh, it posted beats on all fronts. But it was kind of guidance and a little bit in terms of gross transaction volume that caused the stock to take a pretty big hit on earnings day. So, revenue was 239 million. Earnings per share came in at 8 cents. So, expectations were for 236 and uh, 2.7 cents in earnings. So, the main issue for the company here at least in the short term is we're kind of starting to see a bit of weakness in terms of the economy and it's and it's starting to reflect in Lightspeed's results. So, Gross transaction volume, which is pretty much the amount of sales the the company's customers drive like through their, say, uh, point of sale systems, it was only up 3.6%. So the previous six years, Lightspeed had grown gross transaction volume by 20%, 115%, 51%, 54%, 37%, and 49%. So it came out with 3.6%, which is way, it was, it was way lower than anyone had expected. And then in addition to that slowing volume, uh, the company made this comment. The company remains cautious on near term prospects due to a still uncertain macroeconomic environment and the pace of unified payments adoptions in international markets. In addition, the fiscal fourth quarter is historically the company's weakest quarter for uh, gross transaction volume performance. So to me, the fact they mentioned that the fourth quarter is the weakest probably means they think it's going to come in weaker than it is now. So it, you might even see a decline in, in volume. So that will certainly be interesting to watch. And then their subscription revenue has witnessed a pretty big slowdown. 
So it grew year over year 6%, whereas in previous years, it wasn't unusual for it to grow, you know, 20, 30, 40%. So the company's strategy over the last bit is to spend its efforts focusing on high volume locations. So the reasoning for it is pretty simple. There's much lower likelihood a business that's generating a million dollars in transaction volume is going to churn and cancel their subscription to Lightspeed over a company that is generating a hundred thousand dollars in volume. So when times get tough, the business generating at a hundred thousand, they probably won't be able to maintain the systems where a company generating one million will still probably rely on it. So high value clients, they define them as customers who generate more than 500 K and or 1 million in annual gross transaction volume. They increase by 7% year over year. But on the other hand, the locations processing under 200,000 in gross transaction volume have decreased. Now I found it a bit odd because they had no problem telling you how much their high volume clients had grown, but they didn't state any numbers on how much their low, I wouldn't call them low value clients, but like the smaller businesses decreased. But when you think about it, if if they're growing, you know, 500K and $1 million businesses by 7% a year, gross transaction volumes up 3.6%. I think they're losing a lot of, you know, small to medium sized businesses, maybe not necessarily permanently, but you know, maybe right now when business is slowed, they're, they're churning their subscription, they're canceling um, just when times get tough. So that was one of the main risks with Lightspeed for, for quite a while was their reliance on small to medium sized businesses. And again, yeah, it's, it's easy to read the read between the lines. They're losing more low value clients than they're picking up in high value clients, which is resulting in the slowdown. But ultimately I don't really think there's anything that they could do about it. I mean, it's, it's mostly just a, just an, economic thing. I mean, they have, they have, like I said, a ton of exposure to small and medium businesses, which are just getting, which are really struggling right now. And I kind of mentioned like, look no further than the SEBA situation in in January, like how many businesses, you know, couldn't pay it back outright, or they needed to get a loan to pay it back. So yeah, it probably explains why, because I'm on Finchat.io and I was pulling the KPIs and the total customer locations, they actually stopped reporting that in the uh, Q4 of last year. So the total uh, location. So I'm assuming that they had an inkling that it was probably going to be flat or start trending down because even before that it was, as you can see, it was leveling out to 167,000, 168,000 from pretty rapid growth and kind of leveling out. And I mean, it's just interesting because oftentimes, I mean, we saw that with Apple and how they reported iPhone sales, right? Years ago, they changed from the unit amounts to the total uh, dollar amount. So that's probably why they did that is they were starting to see some weakness in those smaller uh, locations. Yeah. And mostly in the, in the 2020, why 2020 might've been organic, but I'm pretty sure uh, when they acquired New Order, which was in 2021, that's probably what caused a big boost. And they, same with uh, Teladoc, like they, they paid a lot of money for some of those, those acquisitions, which kind of has come back to bite them now. But I mean, it was, it was a pretty rough quarter. They can't really do anything about it. I mean, when the situation improves, I would imagine the numbers will improve. They're pretty cheap right now. I think they have like $800 million in cash on the balance sheet and they're trading at what a market cap of trying to load my screen here. My mouse is, so they got a market cap of 2.8 billion 
and they have, I okay. think, eight, 800 million US in cash. So, I mean, it seems pretty cheap here. I own a pretty yeah. small position. I've I've been in and out of this stock like so many times since it IPO'd. <laughs> I bought it on IPO and I've probably sold it four or five times since. So it's been a crazy ride for this one, but I still own a, a pretty small position, but it wasn't it wasn't the best quarter. Yeah, I know. And you're right. And not a lot of really no long-term debt, which is kind of, yeah. at least it's, it's a positive. And I think, you know, it's important to look at both sides here. Obviously, things are slowing, but I think that's probably more a reflection of the economic environment. And I think yeah. my my biggest criticism for Lightspeed, and I've criticized them a little bit over the years, but my biggest was that it's a very competitive space, point very, of sales. Yeah. yeah, and I just have a hard time seeing how, like, they might have a nice profitable little business but i don't know to what point they can really scale profitability without getting some more intense comp competition that's probably yeah my biggest thing with them yeah and they've kind of tried to expand beyond like point of sale like originally they were pretty much just a pure play point of sale company but now they do quite a bit of commerce stuff they actually like if you go to like a, a golf course website and book a tea time like they run like a tea time booking platform for a okay. lot of golf courses yeah. and yeah they it's an interesting company i mean s small position for me like i said it's pretty speculative at this point in time the pandemic run-up was just absolutely nuts i think at one point like they're 18 dollars right now i think at one point they might have hit 150 dollars it yeah, was uh, sounds it, about right 160 oh, yeah. they got up to 160 yeah. It was, yeah. uh, it was crazy. It's not a good quarter, but <laughs> I'm still holding. Well, that's what happens when uh, you're in the zero interest rate environment yeah. and money is flowing. People are remortgaging their houses, spending left, right, and center. Uh, you know, you have government stimulus. I mean, at some point, the party's over and yeah. then, uh, you know, it takes some time. But now I think we're starting to see that. The repercussions of that just uh i mean we're, we've been seeing it for a little bit but even more so now yeah and it's it's not exactly like it's not i don't want to give the impression that it's like specifically isolated to light speed like this was a ton of companies that went through this even shopify oh, yeah. shopify yeah. took an absolute beating off uh 2021 highs so it's uh it was an interesting anything time. that was growth yeah. yeah anything that was growth and i would say even more so if they were growing quickly but were not profitable, those got hit the hardest. Yes, yeah, which was light speed in its like true definition. Yeah. Do they generate free cash flow or I believe this quarter they might have been positive. I'd have to double check that. I mean they, they mostly measure on an adjusted EBITDA basis and they came in positive there. That's kind of their profitability target. I think they might of generated i'll have to check yeah but i, well, I, don't I like to so. look at more as a year basis because obviously it's super um volatile but still not quite at least for the trailing 12 months but it'll be interesting the the next 12 months maybe they'll be able to kind of eke out some free cash flow there yeah they still burn through quite a bit of cash for sure but um yeah I well, think that's good. No, that's a good space. overview. Yeah. Now we'll move on to another uh, pandemic darling here, Teladoc. So Q4 and full year results. It's been a while since I've talked about them. Uh, one of the reason is I don't follow them as closely as I used to because I used to own it. I don't anymore. I sold it around actually this time last year. And I just want to go over quickly why I sold my position last March. 
management, like you said, <laughs> like you implied. So management had several acquisitions when the markets were extremely highly valued. One of them particularly was extremely expensive and quite massive. And that was when they acquired Livongo, which is a company focused on chronic care. You know, I gave management the benefit of the doubt here because they said, look, we paid a high price, but we're building an integrated telemedicine platform, which should provide growth and really differentiate us compared to other platform where people have like kind of one stop shop for all their telemedicine needs. But we said it at the time, the price paid was really high and granted there was a lot of stock that was involved but it diluted shareholders quite a bit but I still figured I would give management some time to kind of prove themselves and I also had bought the stock when it was in the $35 range so I was pretty well into profit I even trimmed when it was close to the top so uh, but I I still kept a pretty decent position. The acquisition for Livongo was completed in late 2020. 2021 was a great year, but it was also still in the midst of the pandemic. And it was comparing results, obviously, to pre-acquisition. So results definitely, you know, we have some base effects there when you integrate a new business. So that definitely boosted the results. The problem is that growth started slowing in 2022 and expenses started increasing. They also had a massive write-down tied to the Livongo, actually several write-downs tied to the Livongo acquisition, showing that it clearly didn't wasn't going the way they had intended. And in my view, things were not going the way management had told shareholders at the time of the acquisition. I gave them basically two years from the time they acquired Livongo and I didn't see improvement in the results like they were saying. And if anything, it was actually starting to go a bit more sideways. Not quite, but they were still growing, but the growth had slowed significantly. Like I said, I trimmed some of my position near all-time highs, but I also sold a big chunk of it below the price I bought it. I could have sold it sooner, but... I kept my shares, um, you know, because I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt. And then last year, I just decided, look, it's going in the wrong direction. I'm going to sell. And, you know, maybe they could have turned turned things around and could have been higher now. I'm definitely glad I did because I got a better price than if I would have sold it now. But I just wanted to explain to that because that's the whole process I went through for people that would be listening and maybe are sitting on losers. You know, sometimes it might be right to sell. Sometimes it might not. I think it's important to also not make any rash decisions and just have a good framework behind it. No, yeah, definitely. I'm the one thing I was looking at, because I actually read here the the valuation of it, it seems pretty cheap right now. Like it's it's oh, yeah. down it's down <laughs> like I don't even know what this would be. It's got to be down like ninety something percent from its highs. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's crazy. I I haven't paid too much attention to Teladoc. Like I own. I'm pretty sure everybody knows here. I've spoke about it a few times. I own Well Health. Which is yeah. a little bit of a teledoc play, but not necessarily. They have a lot of patient care facilities and things like that. But uh, I didn't know that TDoc was doing this bad. Like three, what oh. was it? Eight percent revenue growth. Oof. 
Yeah. That's... Yeah. So for the results, yeah, exactly. So for the year, revenues were up 8% to 2.6 billion. For the quarter, it was only up 4%, showing that there was some clear deceleration here. And that's always something for people that are looking at results, something you can kind of pinpoint pretty quickly, right? So if you see a big divergence on a growth rate between the full year and the quarter, whichever way it is, it'll tell you either the quarter, you know, things are accelerating or decelerating or about the same, right? If, it, if it's the same. So I think I always find that interesting because you can look just very quickly and get a glimpse of yeah. what exactly how the, the business is trending. It essentially lines up with their guidance for 2024 uh, for the full year, actually for 2025. For the full year, they are guiding 3% increase in revenue if we take the midpoint of the range they gave. And Obviously, it's kind of a continuation of the fourth quarter after 4% growth. So this is my view, honestly. The business seems to be stalling a little bit here. A 3% increase is at best going to keep up just with inflation in 2024. I think it's safe to say that inflation will be at least 3%, maybe a bit more. Yeah. So to me, the business is essentially flat in terms of sale. The net loss was much better than the previous year, but again, it's those write-downs write I talked about, so it's not a, a very good comparator here. They generated a decent amount of free cash flow, though, and that's been the case for Teldoc for a little bit of time now. They generated $339 million, and that was a 95% improvement over last year. Free cash flow per share is actually trending up I was kind of surprised because they did a lot of dilution <laughs> over the years. So yeah. I was surprised to to see that. Uh, yeah, knowing, I know you know Telendonk a little bit. Were you kind of surprised to see that as well? Yeah, because when you look at, like, what would that chart be from 2017? So shares outstanding have gone from 46 million to 167 million over this same time period. Yeah. And somehow, like, free cash flow for per share has gone from what is that negative 70 cents to two dollars ten cents or is that yeah that's per share yeah, yeah per yeah. share yeah yeah it's uh that's pretty surprising i didn't even know the company was cash flow positive to be honest so uh, uh yeah i knew they were i mean they were on and off obviously there was 2020 yeah that was kind of uh an outlier there but yeah they that is something from a gap perspective from an earnings perspective they've I can't recall them ever producing a positive quarter, but free cash flow definitely. And uh, the last thing I'll say is they're trading at seven times free cash flow, which is yeah, that's pretty that's pretty cheap. I mean, I think there might be some upside here. I'm not hundred percent sure. Of course, it's difficult because clearly the on the revenue side, it's not really growing. So you're kind of banking on management to get more efficient and just provide some yeah some better margins overall i guess that remains to be seen but seven times free cash flow if they can keep it similar or improve slightly you know there might be a little bit of upside uh, going forward i think that the correction may be a bit overdone for them but we'll have to see obviously it could go either way but just based on that i think you know there could be a worse price to pay if you're interested in a telemedicine play yeah, it seems reasonably cheap. I mean, the one thing about a 3% top line growth is eventually, like you can only improve margins and so much until you need yeah. money coming in the top to turn out money into the bottom. So a 3% growth rate is not uh, not the best, which is why it's probably trading really cheap. And I, I, it looks like it has quite a bit of debt as well. 
Yeah, they. I think they picked on some dead, if I remember correctly, from the acquisition yeah. of Livongo. I'm just pulling the the numbers here. So, yeah, a little bit, uh, definitely a, a bit of debt. So about 1.5 billion on the balance sheet, and then if you compare it to that with cash, yeah, so 1.1 billion of cash. So not too yeah. bad. Probably a net debt position of 400 million or so, but still something to keep in mind. Where you look at a light speed, where they had a, a net cash position, but on the other end. They're burning money where Teladoc is not. So yeah. I think it's it's probably similar situations when you Close. look at it. Yeah. Except yeah, yeah. Lightspeed is still like, you know, growing top line at least by twenty to twenty five percent thus far. I mean, who knows moving forward just because of I mean, I don't think too many people are bullish on the Canadian economy, but it'll be interesting. Do you want to go on to Lobla? Yeah, if you want to talk about Loblaws, sure. and then we'll do a quick overview. And uh, you did some good notes about B- BMO and Scotiabank reporting, uh, first of the big banks. Yeah, yeah. so Loblaw continues to report pretty strong results, which is a controversial subject for many, uh, especially politicians. Uh, revenue is up 3.7%. Same-store sales are up 2% for its food retail and 4.6% on its shoppers drug mart segment. So when we look to same store food sales, 2% is actually lower than, you know, what you, the, and cause this is on a year over year basis, like uh 2023 versus 2022. So that's actually, if you consider food inflation is, I can't remember what we said, it's still at 6%, five or 6%. So yeah, that sounds about right. This yeah. same store food sales of 2% is, is actually lower. So Actually, that was on a sequential basis. That that was quarter over quarter. So it's grown 2% quarter over quarter. On a full year basis, revenue increased 5.4% and adjusted earnings per share by 13.6. Same store food sales increased 3.9%. So the point is still there. It's not as high as inflation, food inflation, but it's still, it's relatively high. Drug retail increased by 5.4%. So the company's like shoppers drug mart segment, particularly with like pharmacies and uh, prescriptions and stuff, I think is what is driving most of the growth right now. And it's also buying back a ton of shares. So it purchased $1.72 billion worth of shares over the course of the year. And since 2020, Loblaw has reduced its overall share count by more than 16%. I think it was actually close to 17%. So the company has been on a pretty crazy buyback spree, which is which is definitely helping their earnings growth. So it posted returns on capital 11.5%, which is a 70 basis point increase from last year. Debt to adjusted EBITDA came in at 2.3x, which would be 10 points lower than last year. And free cash flow came in at 1.7 billion. So it pretty much spent all of its free cash flow on buybacks. So that would be an 11% increase from last year. It's still growing its e-commerce sales at a double digit pace. So this is a pretty important metric as well because it kind of shows you how permanent the shift to online ordering would be. So they had they would have had some pretty tough comparables during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic and they're still growing on top of those numbers at a double digit clip. So Really? Yeah, huh. 10.6%. Okay. And I, I believe like during the pandemic, they were growing it at like a 30 some percent pace. And I figured for sure you would eventually see a decline. 
but they're still they're still growing at at a double digit clip. I mean, some people just like ordering online, and I'm pretty sure they'll pick your order for like a like a small fee. They'll go through and pick yeah, your and then order you just and, like park in one of those spaces, and, and they they'll come, come pick the, it yeah, up. We yeah, we did that when they had all the lockdowns. Yeah, uh, we did that like for a couple months, but uh, I still like going in person and uh, you know touching my fruits and vegetables. Yeah. I like to. I make mean, if sure you get produce, especially. I mean, it's yeah. I would. We did this during the pandemic too. I don't think they charged you during the lockdown period. They just did it. But now I'm pretty sure they charge you a fee to put the order in. But um, if we look at the grocers coming out of the pandemic, Loblaws is like miles ahead of the others. So over the last three years, it's gained 140%. The next closest is Metro at 43% and Empire at 3%. So that would be total returns, dividends reinvested. So this isn't all that surprising as Loblaws, it's got the the widest moat, I think, in terms of Loblaws stores. I believe every Canadian, on average, is only around nine kilometers away from a Loblaws from a Loblaws branded store. So they have a huge, huge moat in that regard. Uh, but they also have the largest discount element out of all the major grocers. I know Metro. We don't even have Metros here, but I know they do have. In the East, they have some discount brands, but Empire really struggles in that regard. I mean, I know they're shutting down Sobeys and Safeways to try and convert them into like discount stores. I have mentioned this before. I used to be a pretty regular Sobe shopper, but I don't know if I'll ever shop there again. It's just the prices are just absolutely absurd. So I just go to no frills. Um, I will admit, at least where I'm at, that the, the shopping experience is definitely not the best at at our no frills but i mean yeah there it kind of smells in there and the food is the it's kind of off but i mean the cost difference (laughs) is massive to the point where you know it it, it's definitely worth it they release guidance so they expect earnings per share to grow in the high single digits earnings growth will outpace revenue growth and capital expenditures to be around 2.2 billion which is it's 100 billion higher 100 million higher than uh, last year so it clearly feels its share price is still discounted despite, you know, a massive run up in price over the last while as it plans to allocate a significant portion of free cash flow for share repurchases. And as we can see last year, it pretty much spent all of it on that. So it stated that tailwinds from the attractiveness of its discount brands will be one of the main reasons that it continues to uh, grow at a high single digit pace moving forward. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I'm looking at how much they're, they've generated in free cash flow and in terms of share repurchases. It's pretty amazing just to see that uh, over the last few years. Yeah, they bought back a ton of shares. And I mean, they were really yeah, they, cheap for a long time. Like Loblaws didn't move anywhere in price and they just kept buying back shares for quite a few years. Yeah, it seems like they've been, at least, yeah, I'm looking at the quarterly info. So over the years, yeah, it's been just increasing. So they've bought back pretty much like over since 2017, except for 2019 and 2020. I think they're, yeah, except for a couple of years, they've bought back what looks like pretty much like a billion in stock every single year uh, since 2017, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. And I mean, they did so at like, if you look at that 2017 to like 2020, 2021 spot, like they stayed cheap for quite a while. And I mean, even now that they've gone up 140% over the last while, they're still going to buy back a ton of shares. So they clearly don't believe the stock is even expensive right now, even though it's gone up quite a bit. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe it's all those uh, Galen uh, Weston commercials yeah. that are really uh, driving the sales. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that guy. That guy's tough. Are those still playing? Like, we don't have cable. Do you? Uh, do I don't you see have those TV. On the- no, you don't have TV either. No. So for those who do have cable and not just on demand, uh, feel free to let us know on Twitter if uh, Galen is still being featured in those President Choice commercials. Because I, I did not like. I did not understand why they kept like using him for PR because he's not the most charismatic no, person. No, definitely not. That. Yeah, it made the situation worse. I think. But yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that, no, I think that was a great overview. Do you want to go with uh, BMO and Bank of Nova Scotia? And I think uh, I'll definitely have some things to, to add here, um, here and there because I was able to look a little bit at the results too. Yeah, so this is just like a quick overview. I I think we'll go more in depth next week when they like all reported. So yeah, BMO definitely had a rough quarter. Like it, Scotiabank's was pretty good, but BMO's was it was rough. So headline numbers look pretty rough. They reported earnings of two dollars fifty six when the expectations were for three dollars two cents. So the capital markets division saw a near twenty percent decline in revenue. And this kind of aligns with, uh, this is probably a month or two ago, I pulled that study from TD Bank where it said 47% of Canadians didn't contribute to their investment accounts in 2023. The context of the study was a bit weird. I don't know if it's like people who invest with TD or people who have accounts didn't contribute or just overall all Canadians. But I mean, it's pretty clear that a lot of Canadians don't have a lot of money to invest right now. And we're seeing that in trading volumes dip and new listing fees with a company like TMX Group are pretty much non-existent. So the average Canadian is struggling to save and invest right now, which ultimately impacts capital market revenue to an extent. The one thing, overall revenues dipped 8%. This is kind of, I think this was way under what people expected. I don't, I don't think there was a decline in revenue projected. And provisions for credit losses jumped to 627 million. So this was higher than the 514 million expected. And it's nearly triple on a year over year basis. So the higher provisions, at least for me and probably a lot of other people who, who kind of look into these banks a little more in depth, it could come as a bit of surprise because for many, the main narrative here in terms of the PCLs is a Canadian housing market. But BMO has the lowest exposure to residential mortgages as a percent of its total portfolio at 22.9%. That's their Canadian exposure. I believe they have, I think, total maybe 26, 27% with US mortgages involved. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. But when you compare this to something like uh, CIBC, which is over 51%, it's really low exposure to the housing market. So the the high PCLs was was a bit of a surprise for sure, especially like the big increase. So overall, just not a good quarter from BMO. I don't know if you want to put your thoughts in there and then uh, I'll move on to Scotia. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's the the general sense I got as well. So the, the biggest things, at least for me, for the takeaways was the loan loss provisions that had a pretty big jump, even when you look at a sequential basis, because you'll see media will try to say oh it's like year over year like i think it almost doubled year over year but again i think you want to make sure in the with the banks especially and depending on the kind of business that are reporting but with the banks looking on a quarter over quarter basis i think it, it brings you a lot of insights as well because you know a lot of those loans that they have were already originated 
you know, last quarter. So it's kind of a continuance. So they're probably, I don't know if they're seeing some more softness. I know in their results, they were saying it's more of a method that they were changing a little bit. Maybe they weren't being conservative enough. So that's why they adjusted it that way. It was really weird. I sent it to you. I can't remember the exact wording, but just very strange the wording they were using. I think they were almost trying to convey that their loan portfolio hadn't got worse. It was just their methodology that was different. Something like that. I'm kind of summing up, but you remember what I... uh, Yeah, so it says the 154 million provision for credit losses on performing loans in the current quarter, which is loans... Like performing loans are loans that are still getting paid, but they project will go unpaid. So on those performing loans, uh, they say it was primarily driven by portfolio credit migration and model updates. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's, <laughs> I guess, yeah. That's about, that's I'll, about I'll it. let, it's very vague. Yeah, it's very yeah. vague, exactly. So I think that's the the one note. And the other, the other thing, obviously they don't have as much mortgage exposure as you just said compared to other banks like CIBC or even I think Bank of Nova or Scotiabank also has some pretty significant mortgage exposure. But BMO is one of those banks with those variable rate mortgages with fixed payments. And a lot of these are in negative amortization. So they said they still have $23 billion worth of these mortgages that are negatively amortizing and that's down 23% quarter over quarter so clearly they're making some progress there whether it's people switching to fixed rates or people just like having to renew and then it's re-amortized and then there's not supposed to be this issue going forward but that's definitely something to keep an eye on and for those who are interested in this bank I definitely encourage you to look at their presentation because they uh, give a good breakdown of their mortgage maturity uh, schedule, which I think it's really important for any of the Canadian banks, clearly some more than others, probably more of a CIBC, obviously, compared to BMO. But uh, it's interesting. They break that down. They also do some projections on what the average increased payment will be. They're just projections because obviously they don't know for sure because interest rates will vary down the line. Yeah, it was... It's a rough quarter. I mean, the one positive side would be that the Bank of the West acquisition is going pretty good for them. That was a, a like a regional bank that they bought in the United States last year. Yeah, didn't they buy that like right around the whole like uh, regional bank? Yeah, it was. But they, uh, what was happening? They purchased yeah. it before, but I don't think it had yeah. closed yet. And I know okay, TD right. with uh, what was that bank called? First Horizon, maybe they backed out. Yeah. yeah. But BMO went through yeah. and, and closed it. And uh, apparently it's going pretty well. So that's a good sign. But move on to Scotia. Or do you have anything else? Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. And uh, I think we'll wrap it up. And then next week, I think we'll probably dedicate most of the episode for a banker. And yeah. yeah. Scotia had a better quarter. So this is probably a relief to many as a, the bank has, has had a lot. You know, they've had a few rough years. Although adjusted earnings dipped by 8%, revenue grew by 6%. So this is a pretty stark contrast to BMO, which is 8% decline. So on the Canadian banking end of things, the bank saw total loans decrease by 1%. So mortgages were down 5%. Business loans were up 9%. And credit cards were up quite a bit, 18%. Like This is a pretty big increase in credit card balances over the last while. A lot of the strong results. What's that? 
I know why. Because you're richer than you think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They'll bump your credit limit. You're richer than you think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, it's okay. Take on as much yeah. debt as you want. You exactly. can buy whatever you want. <laughs> They're richer than you think too. <laughs> so a lot of the strong results on the quarter was fueled by its international banking segment, which has been like such a drag on the business for many, many years. So... On a quarter-over-quarter basis, they grew revenue by 11%, adjusted earnings by 35%. On a year-over-year basis, international revenue was up 9%, while net income is up 5%. So again, it's only one quarter. I mean, we'll see how it goes moving forward because, it, like I said, it's it's been one of the main drags on the business. They've primarily in, in Latin America, they expanded very rapidly over there over the last few years, and it just hasn't worked out at all. So... They reported a much better quarter on a PCL front. So if you remember, like Scotia reported like big PCLs last quarter, which seemed like an attempt to play catch up to maybe underestimating them previously. So total PCLs last quarter were 1.256 billion, which was way, way higher than anyone had expected and was a 50% jump from even the quarter prior. So this year, this quarter, they reported PCLs of 962 million, which brought their PCL ratio down by 15 basis points or 0.15%. So it sat at 0.5. They saw a huge improvement in its Canadian banking segment in terms of PCLs as it nearly cut its PCL ratio in half. It went from 63 basis points to 34. And its international PCLs sit at 135 basis points which is a 16% or a 16 basis point increase or 0.16% increase quarter over quarter. So the Canadian the Canadian banking segment, especially like the big decline is the one thing that surprised me. Like just a huge decline in their PCL ratio on the on the uh Canadian like retail lent loan end. Yeah, yeah, no, it's and I think we had we had talked about that. I think it was one of the first episodes I we did together on the podcast when we looked at uh, bank earnings mm-hmm. last quarter, and that was our biggest thing when we started comparing the total amount on the balance sheets for allowance for loan loss provision or provisions for credit losses. You could tell as a percentage that Scotia Bank was definitely under the other big banks. Uh, That's one thing uh, we had looked at. So it made sense that they put in more money for loan loss provisions last quarter. And now it seems to be normalizing, although it's still quite significant in amounts, let's be honest. And for people looking to see how much banks actually have set aside on their balance sheet. So you have to go into their balance sheet. And you'll see there's going to be something like provision for credit losses, allowance for loan losses, loan loss provision, something like that. Uh, there's all They're all different synonyms. You'll see it on the balance sheet and you'll see what they've set aside there. And you can see the total amount because what you'll see in the headlines in the quarter is just what they set aside for that quarter specifically in addition. So it doesn't factor in maybe, you know, there's just loans that have been taken off the books. Like there's a, a whole lot of different and things that aren't factored in. So looking at the balance sheet, you can actually see how much do they have right now. Yeah. Yeah. Like the 962 million would be what they set aside that quarter. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't like an exceptional quarter, but I think the fact that they came in like with a much quieter quarter in terms of PCLs, maybe, maybe brought some relief. I think like right now, as of this morning, it's up like three, four percent, whereas BMO, I think, is is trading down three or four percent. That's down five percent. So, I mean, 
it was a pretty good quarter from Scotia and, and a pretty bad quarter from, from BMO. But I think like if, if Scotia would have came in with, you know, higher PCLs, it, it would have probably been a different story. So I think this is kind of, cause it was such a jump last quarter that it probably spooked, spooked a few people, but overall it's not the hottest start for Canadian banks, but it's not like it was unexpected. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's that's fair. And I mean, I don't own any banks and I've been very critical of banks, but I know you do own some. I think you have you do have some BMO, right? Because they have the least uh, yeah, mortgages. Yeah, uh, BMO was actually, yeah. I have BMO, Royal and, and TD. They make up, I think at this point, like maybe 7% between all three of them. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. own a ton of banks. I mean, I know a lot of Canadians are, are huge, huge, huge into banks. I mean, I know whatever we do anything in regards to the banks over at, at stock trades, like the, the reaction, like the interaction with the posts or the video or anything just goes through the roof. Canadians love yeah. their banks, which yeah, I mean, episodes when, when we talk about Canadian banks, like we get a lot of yeah. people listening, that's for sure. And I mean, look, they're, they're good banks. Like overall, I mean, our financial system or banking system in Canada has been pretty resilient if you look back. And I think that's why a lot of people like them is because they held their own during the great financial crisis, yeah. whereas the U.S. was really struggling. And clearly we have, you know, six very large banks. Our Canadian banks would be some of the largest banks even in the U.S. if they were in the U.S. That's how big they are. But then again, the U.S. has like 4,000 banks, yeah. right? There's a lot of regional banks. So I think there's that. They have like a history of paying dividends that I think is attractive to a lot of people. I mean, Scotia is yielding what close to 7%, I yeah. think, right now. Yeah, they got a big High sixes. Yeah. And I think that's alluring. I, I would just say, look, and we've we've had some interactions on Twitter as well where people yeah. get very passionate. And, you know, if people want to invest in bank, that's completely fine, right? It's their money. But just make sure you understand the business at least decently well. I know banks can be complicated, but at least having some KPIs, some key performance indicator that you can focus on. And when you see that things aren't trending the right way or they are, then you can adjust your investment accordingly, whether you add or subtract but i i've noticed a lot of people tend to be focusing on the yields and the main argument is that well they've been paying a dividend for 80 years or whatever the amount of time is some of them almost 200 yeah 200 (laughs) like whatever the amount of time and yeah it's a great track record but you know nothing's forever and i think you also have to focus on the business and that you know what's been happening for 100 200 years whatever the amount of time uh there's no guarantee that it will continue indefinitely in the future and i think that's just really important and at the end of the day do you want your investment including dividends to outperform the market or underperform it and a scotia bank like we're talking about that earlier i mean they've literally underperformed like the TSX 60 any time frame you looked at over the last 10 years. Yeah, they've I had think a the only horrible one that, time. Yeah, I think the only one they outperformed was the three months where they outperformed by like 50 basis points, probably because it's a bit up today, to be honest. That's probably the main yeah. reason right there. But And obviously, if you compare it to the S&P 500, then it's even worse um, over that t- time frame. So I think it's just important to rem- remember that. And if you like the peace of mind that a high dividend gives you and you don't care as much about the total returns, that's fine. I mean... 
that's your money. But I think it's really important for me, at least I try to look at it from a mathematical basis. And if your assessment of it, if my assessment of uh, Scotiabank, for example, would be that going forward, it's going to outperform the market, then I may consider investing in it. But I just have a hard time believing that uh, they'll outperform the market. Yeah. And I mean, like if you look at Scotia, like historically from, so I took uh, like ZEB, which would be BMO's uh, like banking ETF. And I, I put them against Scotia, which would have some of Scotia's, you know, drag on that fund. And it's still like ZEB has returned 4X what Scotiabank has returned over the last 10 years. Like it's, it's been a pretty weak bank. I mean, whether it will be moving forward, I mean, who knows? the main drag on it is the Latin American exposure. It has been for a long time. It posted a pretty good quarter. I'm not ready to declare it not, uh, you know, kind of a, a dud over the last while, but who knows if it strings together a bunch of successful quarters, it could turn things around. Whereas, you know, a bank like BMO clearly looks to be struggling right now. So, yeah. Yeah, I think either way, I think it's good to give it a bit of time. Yeah. You know, don't make a decision just based on one quarter. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway, I would say. But I think we're running a bit long here. I think that's a, that's a good episode. Thank you, Dan, for doing most of the research on uh, those two banks. I, I know you like the banks and uh, the uh, Twitter interactions you get from <laughs> uh, from the banks as well. I don't even have to say anything on it anymore. They just they just come at me. They just tag you. They just yeah, tag exactly. me. exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. And uh, if you're new to the podcast, uh, definitely uh, we appreciate if you can take a few minutes and just give us a review. Apple Podcasts, five star on Spotify just helps people finding us easier with their algorithm and all that good stuff. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Fiat underscore Iceberg and Dan at Stock Trades underscore CA underscore. Yeah. Okay. Underscore CA. I'll, I'll get there by the end of 2024. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> So, yeah, so I think that's it. Anything else you want to say before we wrap up? No, that's it. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.